the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about air travel and pensions. In a few moments, you'll hear from Enda Corneal, country manager in Ireland for Dubai-based airline Emirates. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about a proposal put to government to provide an SSIA-style top-up to workers as part of its new auto-enrolment pension scheme. But first, it's the air travel. Dubai airline Emirates kept flying out of Dublin during the worst of the pandemic. But with travel restrictions now lifted in most countries, it's hoping to add capacity out of Dublin next year, particularly on flights to Australia. Enda Cornell is the country manager for Emirates in Ireland and he joins me now on the line. Enda, just tell us a little bit about uh, Emirates operations out of Ireland at the minute and how they would compare, let's say, with last year, which obviously was a, a big lockdown period when COVID first hit the market. We're currently operating daily flights with the Boeing 777 aircraft. That would compare to double daily flights uh, pre-pandemic. We would have been carrying close to 40,000 passengers um, between Dublin and Dubai and onwards. About 80% of our passengers connected onwards to the likes of the Far East, Australia, Africa. So at the moment, our business is very much confined to uh, Dubai. We're doing 70% of our business terminating at Dubai. Some business into uh, Thailand, into Maldives. I suppose, less capacity than we would have had before. And Australia would have been a big market for you pre-pandemic, wouldn't it? And Australia closed off its borders and it's only beginning now really to loosen the restrictions on people travelling in and out of there. So how has that impacted on your business out of Ireland? Well, Australia, four of the um, key points in Australia would have been amongst our top 10 destinations out of Ireland and would have, I suppose, formed the backbone of our double daily operation with huge numbers traveling. Ireland would be in the top three global markets uh, feeding Australian flights. So a very, very important part of the business. And yes, um, that really, we really missed that traffic. Now, since the 1st of November, um, Melbourne and Sydney have reopened and we've launched daily A380 services into Sydney. We're going to put daily A380 into Melbourne in February. And that already now we're beginning to see traction our bookings on Australia are up almost 200% since that decision was taken. Uh, big demand over Christmas and onwards into January, February. But it really won't be until we see Brisbane and Perth coming on- online as well that we'll get to see you know, the real volume that we would have enjoyed pre- pre-pandemic. And that'll really, I suppose, support a decision to increase the frequency on Dublin. So pre-COVID, you were doing two flights a day out of Dublin. You're currently doing one. What are the load factors now compared to pre-pandemic? So pre-pandemic, we were touching 85% seat factor um, across the, the, the 14 flights a week. We're now just over 50%, probably all 50 to 55%. Um, but having said that, um, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, we were at 20%. And we're also still um, gaining a huge contribution from cargo, which is under the floor, um, which continues to be very, very buoyant. I suppose what's interesting is that the mix we're getting on board that 50% seat factor is quite rich. We're very busy in first class, very busy in uh, business class. So overall, we're, we're cash positive. Right, yeah, I, I read that you were profitable, uh, even though you're only filling half the plane, um, putting, you know, half the seats are, are full for every flight. And that's that's because of cargo and I guess because of, of business fares as well. Yeah, I mean, a very good uh, mix on board and under the floor, the cargo piece has been a huge contributor right throughout the pandemic. Um 
still a lot of airlines are have um, limited cargo capacity and we're gaining on that. And the price of containers through shipping is also still very, very expensive, which has seen a shift towards cargo. So we're, we would be three and four weeks out before we would have a slot for a shipper to be able to ship something on board our aircraft. We're that busy. Well, what's the main export, Enda? Um, it's a mixture of food, fresh food, um, dairy, um, fresh meat, um, seafood, um, to pharmaceuticals, to live animals. You really would never know what's underneath the floor. Really? Live animals? What live animals are being exported these days? Uh, we Every month we uh, carry falcons, um, which are bred in Kildare, uh, one of the national animals of the UAE, and they would fly out uh, um, regularly. Dogs, cats, you name it. Well, okay. Uh, interesting. <laughs> um, now, tell me, in terms of uh, airfares, how would airfares uh, to Dubai or onwards to the likes of Australia, how would they compare now with pre-pandemic levels? I suppose they're getting closer now to pre-pandemic levels. I mean, certainly during the um, the, the, the depth of the pandemic, there was really no point in offering promotional rates because they were never going to stimulate demand. Anyone who was travelling had to travel. Since the Irish government relaxed the restrictions on non-essential travel on the 19th of July. We've begun promoting. So fares now to Dubai are in around €500, Euro, which would have been where they were uh, pre-pandemic. Australia now is around 1200 which is a little, still a little bit higher than where we would be. But certainly coming back to normality and pre-pandemic levels. What about business fares, Emma? Business fares have stayed um, fairly static. Um, not a major change. I mean, on Dubai... Uh, at 2,600 um, on Australia, about 4,000. So not a huge difference between pre, pre-pandemic and um, and post-pandemic or, or where we are at the moment. I mean, these would be not as price elastic, price elastic as economy fares. So they haven't really changed that for it that much. So when do we get back to pre-pandemic levels of traveling, do you think? I mean, lots of estimates out there. Depends who you talk to. But what's your view? Our view is that we want to have our whole fleet flying and the network fully restored by summer next year. Um, and that would include going back to double daily on Dublin. Now, a lot will have to happen before that. There's still a huge inconsistency at the rate in which borders are opening uh, and government restrictions are, are being imposed and reimposed and lifted. But certainly the trajectory we see is that we're on track to reach 70% of our capacity by the end of 21 and 90% of our network. Um, by the end of the year as well. So it, it, certainly we're, we're hoping we're at the beginning and the end of this now. And what about, I mean, obviously there's been a surge in COVID cases in Ireland and in some other countries across Europe. How is that impacting on your business? Are you fearful that further uh, or that lockdown restrictions will be reimposed? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's something we're watching very carefully. Our lead time for a booking is four to seven to eight weeks so people book coming into our shop now are booking for January, February, March of next year. And we haven't yet seen a drop off. I think the real fear is that Ireland might find itself on some other country's red list and restrictions would be imposed on Irish customers. So we're monitoring it very closely. But at the moment, we're seeing no drop off in, in booking activity, certainly. Now, the COP26 summit uh, has just finished in Glasgow and sustainability in terms of climate change uh, is a huge, huge issue. Aviation is in the spotlight because of the emissions uh, from aircraft and because of the huge growth we've had in flying, notwithstanding the the COVID pandemic, uh, a huge uh, growth in flying over, you know, uh, decades. And a lot of uh, people in the aviation sector, including Michael O'Leary of Ryanair, saying that 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 will return um, eventually. So what is Emirates 
doing to reduce its carbon footprint? And is it going to be the case that in future, we're, we're all kind of being told subtly that we're going to have to fly um, a fewer number of times every year? We shouldn't have as many holidays going forward because it's bad for the planet. So how's that going to impact your business? Well, I think you have to balance um, the benefits from air travel in terms of globalization and global trade to, to, to the, the, you know, the footprint. I mean, there's research that will suggest that only 2% of emissions come from aviation. So we're not a huge polluter. But to answer your question, I mean, Emirates have been working on uh, reducing its carbon footprint for, for years. And in the last couple of weeks, a couple of interesting developments, we, we announced um, a, a signing, we signed a memorandum of understanding with GE Aviation, which will see one of our 777s powered by GE engines, GE 90 engines, conducting a test flight using 100% sustainable aviation fuel by the end of 22. And no one's done that yet. The, the, the approval is only for a mix of petroleum-based and sustainable aviation fuel, so 50-50. But we want to go the whole way to 100%. And I suppose to prove that a wide-body commercial jet can fly with non-fossil fuel. Um, but we've been doing things on the ground in terms of how we wash our engines, um, how we save water, and on board, getting rid of um, um, straws and plastic bags. So it's something that we even actually have... Are the blankets we offer on economy class are made out of recycled glass bottles or plastic bottles. So there's an awful lot going on behind the scene. But I think there's obviously a bigger debate around who are the polluters and, and, and how the whole emission uh, issue should be dealt with. But certainly we feel we're doing our bit. And, and on top of that, we obviously operate one of the youngest fleets uh, in aviation at 63 months of the average age of our aircraft. And again, these are more aerodynamic. They're more fuel efficient. So I said, you know, we're, we're, it's something we take very, very seriously, and it's obviously very current. What's the aviation fuel made out of? It's a clean substitute for fossil fuels. So it's similar in chemistry to fossil fuels, but it's made out of um, sustainable resources, waste oils, agri-residues, non-fossil CO2. So a variety of different things, but it actually has the same chemistry as fossil fuels. And that, I suppose, is, is the science behind how it can be used to power an engine. Obviously, these engines are... Sp- specifically designed for that. Um, and there have been a number of flights, but no one's really flown with 100%, and that's the plan for the end of 22. Sure, but it's hard to imagine there's going to be enough of this waste material uh, available to, to power um, the world's fleet of aircraft. Well, I think that's the next it's the next challenge. No more than, um, you know, um, car, motor, car companies can produce electric car, but is there are there enough chargers? I think we're at the stage of proving the concept. Then I think that the work will have to be done as to is is there, you know, a, a serious amount of of sustainable fuel available to power a fleet of jets or you know an airline. But I think we're at the stage of proving a concept, and it's exciting. Yeah, but it seems counterintuitive that aviation that you you know you would offer more yet more flights, maybe on bigger aircraft, and you'd be flying more people year after year after year, and that the climate. You know the climate won't change. That this is good somehow, good for the planet. It, it seems counterintuitive that this 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 would be the case. No, I suppose it goes back to the benefits of air travel, in terms of. I mean, if I look at our own operation out of Ireland, one of the things we succeeded in maintaining the operation on cargo was to keep supply lines open for Irish exporters, who would have had no other way of getting their products globally. We now see um, companies in the aircraft leasing business beginning to fly in huge numbers. And again, they're doing complex deals across different cultures. Couldn't be done without getting there through air travel. So there's a huge economic benefit. And I think if aviation 
are doing their bit to ensure that they're minimizing their footprint and you know down the line if an aircraft can fly using 100% sustainable aviation fuel that's major and that you know across a number of carriers a number of aircraft that would, could make serious reductions in the footprint so i i i think it's it's progress. It'll take some time, but it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I think the jury's out. I'm not sure Greta Thunberg would uh, would agree, but anyway, that's for that's for another day. Now, uh, what a lot of people are wondering is uh, where are airfares going to go? Because um, we've had a number of airlines have failed in the uh, pandemic. Um, prices are rising. I don't know if the price of aviation fuel uh, is going up, but I'm sure a lot of your input costs are going up, and people are wondering. Um, what's going to happen? We're, we're being told that uh, we're, we're going to be hit with higher carbon taxes. So how is that going to impact on aviation? Um, Michael O'Leary saying the other day that there should be um, some carbon-related taxes uh, put on aviation to try and um, to, to hit people in the pocket, but that money should be ring-fenced um, then for climate change measures. So what's your view on where fares are going to go, particularly business fares? Well, I think um, we're, we're not going to see anything dramatic. I think... People, even in business class, customers are um, looking out for cheap fares. Cheap fares are, are a hygiene factor um, in terms of people choosing an airline to fly with. There will be sales next year, huge sales promotions to get people traveling again. So I don't think we're going to see the real effect of, of, of where fares are probably until this time next year. Um, but certainly, if you look at the input cost, fuel is now at $80 a barrel. We've been pro- Emirates has been profitable when fuel has been at one hundred and fifteen dollars a barrel. So that's that's that that's again a hygiene factor. Um, the jury's out on 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 charges for emissions as to whether or carbon taxes whether they will hit aviation or not. Um, but again, it's about supply and demand. Emirates' view is um, to keep our fares as low as possible and to keep the quality of the product as high as possible. Like in terms of the business passenger, one of the things we're, we'll be doing from next year is retrofitting. 105 of our aircraft with new premium economy seating, um, which will offer a differentiated product and price um, to that business passenger uh, and provide an option for someone to travel either in first business premium economy or economy. So it's not necessarily in the quantum of the fare. I think I'd look I'd look on it really in the whole um, product. If a business class fare carries with it a, a lounge or, or a limousine, if you remove those elements, can you get that fare down? And is that something that would be acceptable to a customer? I think that's more the way we'd like to go rather than stick with a ticket price and just whether it goes up or down. It's the entire product. And I suppose the other focus was on Zoom during the pandemic. Uh, people were able to connect from around the world very easily on Zoom rather than having to travel by air. Now, I know a certain amount of that and will inevitably come back and has to come back. But um, it, it might not come back in its entirety. What's your view? Well, I mean, the evidence we're seeing at the moment is is the opposite. We're seeing huge demand for business travel, um, for business class and for first class. That could be, you know, a, a degree of people feeling maybe slightly safer in a business class cabin or a first class cabin. But certainly the numbers and the consistently high seat factors we're seeing in business class and first class would suggest that business class is certainly back um, any drop off that observers may have suggested would happen as a result of Zoom and virtual meetings, we're just not seeing it at the moment. And that's not an Irish issue. We're seeing that globally. Emirates business class is very strong at the moment. And I think as a global airline, that's a good barometer as to whether this is going to be something that will continue or not. 
And uh, Enda, uh, just in terms of yourself, uh, presumably you weren't able to travel like the rest of us. You weren't able to travel. Your game is all about travel, I guess. And you'd probably take a number of uh, flights every year, both for business and for leisure. Absolutely. I was on my first flight last weekend to a very short hop to Glasgow and uh, a very thrilling experience. But no, I haven't been in Dubai for, for over a year at this stage, uh, dying to get back going. Uh, and I suppose, you know, that's we're all in that, that boat. And I think what's going to happen is word of mouth is going to play a huge role um, whether it's business travel or leisure travel, people will know how did you get on on your trip to China? How did you get on on your trip to South Africa? And hopefully things will work out well and people will be will gain confidence to take their own trips and we'll see the thing multiply. Okay, Enda Cornell, country manager with Emirates Airlines. Thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor about the government's latest plans for an auto enrolment pension scheme. Back in a few moments. At EY... Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. The introduction of an auto-enrollment pension system for Irish workers has been talked about for more than a decade. Just one third of private sector employees here have a pension, leaving the rest relying on the state pension when they retire. This week, it emerged that the government is considering a proposal that would involve an SSIA-style top-up from the state into a worker's pension. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times had the story and he joins me now on the line. Now, Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining Inside Business. You were writing this week about this proposed SSIA-style top-up from the state uh, for pensions as part of this new auto-enrolment system, which seems to have been talked about for years and years. Explain to us how it'll work. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this one has been on the agenda, auto-enrollment, for, for many years, at least back as far as 2007, when I think the first green paper came out. And then there was a consultation, a big consultation in 2018, and it all seemed to be uh, ready to go when COVID hit, and it's all been delayed again. But uh, basically what's happening now is that the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys, is uh, completing new proposals which are likely to go to Cabinet probably before Christmas. And there are various models that have been put forward for how pension auto-enrolment might work. It looks like the one that is winning favour now and that that features in the final proposals is, is, as you say, an SSIA-style top-up. So what would happen is that the employee would put in a certain amount of money into a pension fund into which they would be automatically enrolled when when they take up a position. The employer would put in a certain amount and that the state would provide a top-up for the employee's element around uh, one euro in every three for what the employee puts in. So, for example, of every four euro in pension contribution from the employee and the state, three would come from the employee and one, one would come from the state and then the employer would put in an extra amount on top of that. It's a complicated enough uh, system, I guess, uh, and there has been a lot of discussion in the consultations about exactly how this top-up would work. So, as you know, at the moment, pensions operate on the basis of tax relief for people who are who are making contributions. So, if you're a lower-rate taxpayer, you get relief at 20%. If you're a higher rate, you get relief at 40%. And a lot of people in the, in the industry had called for the auto-enrollment system to work in the same way saying it would be simpler, more straightforward to have everything on, you know, operating on the same basis. But it seems the government, 
believes that the SSAA style system uh, where, where, where they provide a top up is clearer in terms of selling this to people and perhaps provides an easier way too of dealing with people with lower income people who have limited income tax liability and, and thus, you know, they would have needed some kind of more complicated credit system if tax relief had been chosen as the route. So it does look like this is the way it might go now. And perhaps this is actually going to happen, that we're actually going to move on this pension auto enrollment now. It does seem that the, the proposals are being finalised and that there will be a long phase in time. There will be a time before the uh, this all gets running because it's complicated, maybe probably a couple of years. And then a long phase in when uh, contributions will be gradually phased in for employers and employees. But it does look like it may now actually happen. Cliff, just explain to us how auto-enrolment will work. Who will be eligible and what the companies have to do? Basically, when someone takes a job under the new system, the employer will be obliged to auto-enroll them in a pension scheme. Now, if the employer has a pension scheme already, they may not need to do anything extra. Although some employer pension schemes now are voluntary, so there may indeed be obligations because under the new system, employees are are going to be obliged to sign up and employers will be obliged to sign them up. So what will happen is when you take up employment in the position, you will either be offered a pension through the existing company scheme or through this new auto-enrolled state scheme. So if if it's the new state scheme, the new system that's being set up, the employee will be offered a choice of how their money is going to be managed, probably between four different funds. And this will be administered by an organisation called the Central Processing Authority, which will be in the Department of Social Protection and will actually take the money and will ensure that it's invested by these uh, three or four pension funds who are going to be hired to do so, trying to keep the charges down uh, to, to a relatively low level. So how does it differ from what happens at the moment? It differs from what happens at the moment because a lot of people take up employment and they've no pension entitlements and their employer offers them no pension, or, or they or they choose not to go into a, a pension scheme that's already in operation. So everyone will be, will be signed up now. There will probably be an opt-out available for people. So the initial proposal was that after six months, you could decide to opt-out if you wanted to, and you would then get your contributions back. People may then be auto-enrolled again after a period of years in a job. Uh, three years was the, was the initial proposal if they had opted out, that they would be opted in again, if you like. And there's likely to be some incentive, perhaps after four or five years, perhaps an extra bit of cash from the state to, to really try and get people to, to, to sign into this. Because as we know, there's a large percentage of people who have no pension entitlement above and beyond the basic state pension. So if you look at the private sector, for example, only around uh, 35, 40% of people have pension provision. So there's a lot of people out there, estimated 850, 900,000 who, who have no pension provision uh, beyond the state state pension. And, the, and it's these people that uh, this is aimed at. Okay. Now, if you are already part of a pension scheme and you're availing of the tax relief, um, does anything change for you? No, no. If you're part of a pension scheme already, nothing is likely to change for you. Now, there may be, uh, because of the slight disparity between how this scheme might work and how the scheme works for, for how existing scheme works, perhaps there might be an incentive for some people to move from uh, their existing scheme into, in, into the state scheme. But I, this is really aimed at people who are going into jobs or who are in jobs at the moment where a pension is not on offer. 
uh, number one, or people who go into an organisation and just you know decide or don't bother to sign up to, to the pension scheme that that employer is offering. They're the people that are going to face changes. So a lot, a lot of lower paid workers, uh, a lot of people in, in, in smaller companies who typically wouldn't have pension schemes, they're the ones for, for which something is going to change. Now, it may raise questions about how the tax relief works on existing pension schemes. So the, the, the contribution as set up uh, or as proposed would be equivalent to kind of 25% tax relief, which is a bit more than is on offer to uh, basic rate taxpayers at the moment, but less that's on offer to higher rate taxpayers. So perhaps it may raise debate over how tax relief on pensions should be dealt with in future. But that isn't part of the core proposal. The core proposal is aimed at people who don't have a pension scheme or aren't in a pension scheme at the moment. Yeah, I think you've already had that debate over the last uh, number of years. You were writing as well that it won't apply to people who earn less than 20,000 a year. What do they do? Yeah, the initial proposal, and, and I understand that it it is part of the final plan, is that this auto-enrolment will apply to people who earn more than 20,000 a year. The likelihood is that people who earn less than that may be able to opt in themselves, but won't be automatically signed up. This is something that the unions have pushed in the consultation period, the trade union movement, you know, arguing that, you know, anybody in in employment should be signed up. And obviously it's, it can be difficult, I suppose, in terms of the cost that employers would face perhaps for workers who are working for only a couple of months of the year, for example, and earning lower amounts of money. So, So there may be some scheme that allows them to opt in and some coming and going over what exact income limit may apply. But my understanding is that 20,000 is the figure and the people on a lower level or self-employed people either may have the option then to opt into the scheme uh, but they would have to take the initiative to do that themselves i think it could be an interesting option for particularly for for, for a lot of self-employed people who may be kind of on lower earnings have no pension provision at the moment and may be attracted to to, to opt in on the basis of the of, of the state top-up which does offer a pretty attractive option, I think, provided that the costs of this scheme, the pension costs, the cost that the pension providers levy on the scheme can be kept at a low level. The suggestion was that it would be kept at a maximum of 0.5%. Obviously, some people pay more at the moment in terms of annual charges on their pension than that, sometimes up to 1%. So uh, I think the costs of the scheme, as well as the state top-up, are going to be a big issue in terms of making this attractive for people. How do employers feel about it? Because this is going to be a cost to their business for a lot of employers that they haven't previously had. I think this is going to be an issue for employers. And it was interesting in the Dáil recently that um, Heather Humphreys, the minister, was talking about this and was talking about phasing this scheme in over a long period. So that, in other words, you would presume that the contributions from employer and employee would start at a low level, a very low level. Initially, you know, perhaps 1% of earnings and gradually build up over a period of years. Now, the, the downside of that is that it takes longer for the scheme to um, to really make a difference to people because if you're only paying in 1% and your employer's paying in 1%, it's not going to amount to very much. But, it, but I suppose it's, at least it's a start. And I think this is going to be a big issue for employers, particularly at the moment, and, and particularly when you consider that I think a lot of the employers affected are going to be the same employers as have been affected by the by the COVID pandemic. They're going to be you know, the restaurants, the hospitality sector, a lot of those sectors that have more transitory workers, that have lower paid workers, that have lower margins. 
that are small and medium-sized enterprises, I think a lot of them are going to be the ones that are going to be, you know, that wouldn't be offering pension schemes at the moment that, that are going to face these new obligations. This could run to a significant cost. And I suppose the issue for employers and employees is, this: does this come out of existing wages or are effectively people going to have the same take-home pay or similar take-home pay and the employer is going to be paying a bit more? And there's obviously going to be a bit of push and pull on that. But certainly if the jobs market, when this comes in, is similar to what it is now, uh, employers are also facing wage and cost pressures and this is uh, this is going to add to them. So I think this is going to be a big issue for employers, as well as for a lot of younger workers who have very limited scope in, the, in, the, in their take-home pay every month or every week. Auto enrolment has been in place in the UK for, for a little while, hasn't it? And I think in other countries as well. Any sense of the experience in those other markets, how it's worked out? Yeah, we seem to be an outlier here and that there's only, uh, I think, two or three OECD countries that don't have some kind of auto enrolment scheme. I, I think they've, they've, they've generally worked, seem to have worked well in, in, in other countries and probably some lessons to learn from the way they've worked uh, and the incentives that are used and, and, and the income limits and all, and, and all those. But I think that the basic message is that Ireland is an outlier here and that we're an outlier in having such la- such a large percentage of the population reliant or theoretically reliant in years to come just on the state pension. Um, so I think there probably is a feeling in government and certainly in some of the people I've been talking to that, look, this is awkward. This is not going to be completely popular with, with, with all constituencies. It's difficult to introduce, but it really is now time just to get on with this and do it because we all know we have an ageing population. Uh, there's going to be pressure on the state pension in years to come. So it's probably time to ensure that people do who are working do have some additional provision. The fund managers must be rubbing their hands. I mean, this is a potential bonanza for them, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a big issue for them, all right. Big deal. And reading the consultations that came in in 2018 and 2019 when the big consultation was done on this, certainly they were very keen on it, all right as were the tax advisors and various other uh, people who would be hoping to, uh, pension advisors who will be hoping to benefit from this. I think one of the issues for the department and for the central processing authority is to get genuine competition into the management of this money. I mean, this is these are going to be big contracts that are going to be ha- handed out to the pension companies. They're going to be potentially lucrative contracts. But there's a relatively small number of players in Ireland, you know, in the pensions market, Costs traditionally have been have been pretty high. Performance has been has been up and down, I guess. And there are underlying problems in the market. Uh, you know, bond interest rates are very low. It is hard to get returns uh, on on a safe basis and to manage that transition when people go from uh, people go from paying in from paying into their pension to getting a pension income. So, I think there are a lot of issues there to work through into how this is managed. And a need for the um, for the people running the central processing authority, which sounds like uh, something from Soviet Russia or whatever, to really put pressure on the industry and, and to see what competition they can get into the management of this money, maybe bringing some international players into the mix, bringing some new thinking into the mix about how, how pensions are, are, are managed. Cliff, how much would this cost the state and can we afford it? I don't know, Kieran, what the cost is going to be. I haven't seen any estimates of that. I presume there are probably some estimates in the final paper, which is going to be prepared for cabinet in the next few weeks. I think the initial cost will probably be fairly low because um, the initial amounts of money in are going to be low. But clearly, you're right. If tax relief equivalent to 25% is given, it is going to increase the the cost to the state uh, of supporting pensions, which is already uh, a very significant factor for the exchequer every year in terms of tax relief. So we're, we're going to see a significant significant increase in cost. 
Uh, but I think in terms of the living standards of people, in terms of putting the pension system on a, on a clear footing, I think it's something that's just going to have to happen. And it, and it will, as well, I think, underline another issue which has come into, uh, into focus in the last couple of years, which is that the, there's now a big hole in the social insurance fund out of which pensions are paid. And a talk that there's going to need to be a general increase in PRSI payments to, to kind of fund that and to fill that hole. So extra entitlements coming down the stream, but we already knew with an aging population that, that pensions are going to cost us more. And if we're going to go down the auto-enrollment route, that, that bit is going to be raised a bit higher again. And, and that's going to increase the, increase the issue or make the issue of how it's paid for all the more urgent, I think. Now, the issue of the state pension has been knocking around for a long time as well. A lot of debate over uh, the viability of it going forward. Is this a baby step by government on the road towards phasing out the state pension? I don't think so, no. I don't think it is. I suppose you could argue that in the years ahead, it might allow the state pension to increase a little more gradually than, than it might otherwise have if people have income coming from other areas. But really, the, I think the state pension is the bedrock of, uh, of pension provision. And what we're talking about here is is supplementing that state pension. We're really talking about supplementary pension provision for a lot of people. So, so no, I don't think it's I don't think it's a first step uh, down that road at all. But I think it is part of that the mix uh, in the years ahead. All right, of looking at the at the inevitable really big rise in the cost of the state pension. I mean, if I had done some work on this, and it is, you know, it is a really potentially really significant cost in the years ahead and this is part of the mix but no i don't think it's uh, i don't think there's any possibility or any 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 thought of the state pension being uh, being phased out so with a fair wind at their back when might this auto enrollment system come in yeah it's a good question um the original target or the <laughs> the revised target the revised again target had been had been uh, 2023 um hard to see perhaps that being reached at the moment uh, perhaps late 2023, if there was agreement at Cabinet early next year of how this was going to move. The indications are it would take the guts of two years, perhaps, to get the system up and running. The uh, industry has said at least 18 months would be needed to get payroll providers into shape to do the necessary uh, deductions and calculations. So I think if you were to guess, if the bullet is is bitten this time around, and that there's a decision early next year that it would be late 2023 or more likely 2024, I think, before this is up and running. And then a very, uh, I think, a very gradual phase in probably in terms of uh, starting at a very low level and, and gradually increasing uh, contributions by employers, employees and the state. And finally, Cliff, at the last election, the, the pension age issue was uh, a big one on the doorsteps. And there's a couple of elements to it. There's, on the one hand, the age at which people are required to retire, which is currently 65, and on the other hand, the age at which they can access the state pension. Um, and that was due to be pushed out to 68 over the next uh, few years. But it was such a hot potato at the last election that, uh, that it's uh, currently under review. Where are we at with that review? Well, the Commission on Pensions has reported and has called for a more gradual introduction of that increase in um, in retirement age or at the age at which you qualify for a state pension, as you might call it, the state pension age. Uh, the government is considering that. It's also um, being pushed into the new Commission on Tax and Welfare, which is going to report next summer. So I think we're going to see that uh, come to a head over the next, uh, over the next few months, uh, the early part of next year. And my sense is that while... 
people in government believed that the initial proposal wouldn't have worked, you know, to increase the retirement age significantly over the next few years, that the more gradual proposal put forward by the Commission on Pensions may be the way that this goes, because there is a feeling that uh, leaving the retirement age as it is now just is going to cause such problems in the future that it really isn't uh, it really isn't an option that, that can be taken. So I think it's going to change. And I think we'll probably see a green light on that next year. There may well be another row when we see the full report from the Pensions Commission and uh, and the Tax and Welfare Commission and um, uh, recommendations on that. Because Sinn Féin have obviously holding the line that they feel if retirement age should actually be pushed back to 65. But the costs are the costs really look really look enormous if that's uh, if that's going to happen. All right, we'll leave it there. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Enda Corneal and Cliff Taylor. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.